I'll say this, this last week, I feel like Rachel and I had a pretty busy week, but we got invited over to another couple's house um, for like a, a nice sit-down dinner, you know, like one that was a little bit more, more formal. And on the way over, we were driving, and I was like, okay, what do we have to talk about? Um, let's see here. It's been a little while. Okay, we garden, we read. Rachel's been like dragging me out to go look for morels. And I felt this little twinge of social anxiety, which I don't usually have. I'm usually a pretty good conversationalist, and so it felt a little bit funny to feel that way. And then when we got to this other couple's house, we, um, they got us some wine, and we sat down on the couch, and they're like, you know, we haven't done this in a really long time, and so we think this could be a little bit awkward, and let's just kind of name that. And I was like, yes, I felt that same thing. And so we had that little moment of connection, like, okay, we're not alone in this. Um, and then it actually it wasn't awkward at all, right? It was good food. The conversation was actually easy. And then on the way home, Rachel and I were like, okay, we, sh- we should do that again. That was actually really fun. We're glad that we did it. And so I want to, well, hang on to that. I'll come back to it. But I had this interaction in my mind as I was looking at the scripture reading from this morning in John 21, which you heard Avery read the first part of that. Um, and it's, it's one of the few post-resurrection stories that we have about Jesus. So the part that Avery read earlier, it was, it was the part where Jesus' friends had been out fishing all night. They had caught nothing. That would be a big bummer, wouldn't it, Jim? <laughs> um, and they see Jesus on the shore. He comes up, says, throw your nets over the other side, and they do, and you know, up come a whole lot of fish. And Jesus says something like, do you have anything to nibble, youngsters? Which I think is a great little translation from the Rudin translation. And that's when they said no, and he said, okay throw your net that way. We're going to read the rest of that story from John 21, and I think we're going to have one of the Zoomies put it up on the screen. I know it might be a little harder for those of you who are over here to actually see it, but I'll read it out loud from John 21. Get that. Yeah, probably won't be seen very well from over there, but that's okay. I'll read it as dramatically as I can. It starts with, the, the student Jesus loved... John, who wrote it, who always called himself that. John said to Peter, it's the teacher. And Simon Peter, hearing that it was the teacher, tied his outer garment around his waist, because he had stripped, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other students, they came back in the small boat, because they weren't that far from land. They were only about 300 feet. And it says they were dragging that net then full of fish. And then as they climbed out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire laid and they saw a cooked relish lying on that. Or it's sometimes translated, a cooked little edible and a loaf. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the relish that you've just caught now. And so Simon Peter, he climbed into the boat and he dragged that net onto the dry land and the net was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even though there were so many, the net didn't tear. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast. But none of the students dared to ask him, who are you? Knowing as they did that it was their teacher. And Jesus came up and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise the relish or the little edible. And this was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the students after he rose from among the dead. Now, isn't it interesting that after all that happened in Jesus's life before his death, there are so many stories about his life, right? What he said who he ate with, even like where he was walking. 
But then in all of the Gospels, after Jesus is raised from the dead, there is surprisingly little recorded. And it's only John that has this story. So in all, in terms of reporting, just like the words or the events that took place after that first Easter Sunday, Matthew only has five verses. Mark has none, unless you count a little bit that was tagged on in later manuscripts. But Mark has zero. Luke has four. Now, if you're a Bible nerd, which I know there's a couple of you here, I'm looking at like Steve and <laughs> I was going to say if Andrea were in here. If you're a Bible nerd, you might be thinking, okay, what about the story of the road to Emmaus? Right? That's found in the Gospel of Luke. But that was actually found on Easter Sunday, not after. Right? And so there's actually just not much after what we call Resurrection Sunday. But John contains 33 verses, still not much. But in terms of describing this post-Easter Jesus, you'd have to say John wins hands down. And I think he would love us saying that because he's the one that told us that he and Peter raced to the tomb of Jesus and that John won, right? He made sure we had that detail. So John, you win. You've got the most. But look at what he gives us. He gives us Jesus tending a campfire on a beach, serving food to his friends. Now, John's gospel is kind of the odd one out for a number of reasons. But one of them is that he doesn't talk about some of the things that Jesus did, like multiplying fish or healing people. He doesn't call those miracles. He uses a little bit of a different language for it. He calls them signs. Right? He says these are signs that we know that Jesus was the Messiah. These are signs that this is the guy we were hoping would come and like, show us how to live and bring God's peace to creation. And so John lists several signs in his gospel. And this story of Jesus multiplying fish, you know, coming up out of this net here on the shore of the lake, is the last of all the signs, right? So it's like the bookend, if you will. The first of the signs on the other end was Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. So that, that first bookend is a story talking about this abundance of wine, and we remember from that story that there were several large jars, I think there were seven, and that Jesus turned all of that into fermented grape juice. And somebody did the math, somebody smarter than me, and said that it was probably work out to be about 750 bottles in today's terms, right? So, so much wine, far more than anyone could drink that night. It was everyone could have all that they wanted, there's plenty left over. So this first sign with this abundance of wine would have reminded the people of a promise in the Hebrew Bible about the great global feast that God was planning. Right? And this feast is part of the Jewish imagination of who God is. And so I'm going to see if our, if our Zoomies can share the screen for our second verse here. This is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. And as I read it, just kind of imagine with me what this, what this picture is that Isaiah is giving us. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. And God will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and they will remove their people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, people will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in them and they saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in them. Let us rejoice and be glad in their salvation. 
Right, so this is the picture in the imagination of our hope, right? That all of the nations are invited to this giant feast and everyone can come. No one's a second-class citizen. Everybody is able to be there without shame who they are, welcome as invited guests, as honored guests. And then at this banquet that's hosted by our creator, we're told that sadness will melt away, that shame will be wiped from our human experience, and goodness and joy and abundance and this companionship of our God will cause everybody to sit there and be like, this is so good that surely this is the Lord, right? Surely this is our God. And I think it's visionary, it's romantic, capital R, right? It's this beautiful picture of the connection of all of humanity and creator and creation. And so with his signs here, coming back to John, John seems to be saying, with Jesus, that feast begins now, right? It's not somewhere in the far-off future on some weird mountain that holds billions of people. No, it starts today in the here and in the now. So we've got this abundance of wine on one end of John's gospel, and then on this other end, we've got this 153 fish that are coming up on this net. And as far as signs go, we might say this last sign isn't actually that spectacular, right? Because earlier in the gospels, we've got these other stories of Jesus like feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes. Here it's just seven people around a campfire with 153 fish, which is a lot of fish for seven people. But still, why this modest ending? And I think what John is saying is that Isaiah's vision of this great banquet happens in the everyday. It's not a special occasion. Jesus' breakfast that he's offering his friends is just a simple picture reminding us that on the days when it seems like nothing extraordinary is happening, that the abundance of the presence of God is with us. Now, I didn't know we were going to do this um, when I actually wrote this sermon, but last night we actually had a few friends over, and Rachel and I built a fire pit a couple years ago, just a simple fire pit, $100 and a little, you know, little arm muscle. And I bought a grate that could go over it, and I was like, we've got this grate we've never used. We'll start a fire, bring whatever you want, we'll just throw it on the grate and eat. And so we had tons of vegetables, like everybody brought way too much, right? We had tons of chicken wings, we had sausages, one of our friends actually brought bread. Justin and Ryan brought flat bread that they had made, and I was at first like, I don't know if that's going to cook over an open fire very well. But it did, and it was absolutely amazing. And it, I felt like it gave me a little sense here of like, oh yeah, this is like this feast that was going on with Jesus and his friends, and I just felt like it's the kingdom of God, right? Those moments like that. And so John's gospel paints a picture, I think, that invites us to imagine into reality a table that is big enough and wide enough to encompass every place and every now. Right? Every place and every now, from weddings to friends' dinner tables to campfires. And these are the ordinary, just everyday aspects of life where when God is present, there is grace upon grace upon grace. And even when we've been tasked to, you know, free the oppressed, bring justice into the world, to go out and liberate all the people, including ourselves, of the chains that bind us from being who we are meant to be at God's table, even when we're tasked with that and with healing the sick, 
we find ourselves in the doldrums of our jobs, right? Just fishing and cleaning the nets, just like James and Peter and John, who were fishermen by trade, maybe not catching anything through the night. You can't get your project management people to get back with you, and you're just like, ah, life. I think it's still saying that even there, Jesus is present, right? And the message is, I love you right where you're at. Come and eat and rest. Breakfast is hot, and there's more than enough. And I think for Jesus' friend Peter in particular, the message might be, I love you, I forgive you. Come, rest and eat. Breakfast is hot, there's more than enough. And I'll, I'll probably focus on this particular moment between Peter and Jesus in this chapter next time I preach, but suffice to say, Peter had good reason to feel a little bit awkward, right? The last time he had seen Jesus, he had denied even knowing him when Jesus was uh, needing his friend the most. Um, I was actually thinking about this on the way over there. I was like, gosh, there would be such a tension. I was thinking about David Gushy and how he was on the phone with me and he put his really he put his whole reputation on the line and got kicked out of evangelicalism, essentially, for being a premier ethicist who stood up for queer people. And so many people aren't willing to do that. I had so many pastors and theologians say, we totally believe in gay marriage. We don't think that there should be any exclusion, but I'm not willing to say that publicly. I can't do that. We have to go slower, right? So it's part of why I love David, because he's like, no, I'm just going to risk it all. I'm going to suffer and carry the cross with the people who are suffering. But Peter didn't choose that route. And that's honestly, it's the more common route, and we've probably all been there in different facets of our life. But there's a tension between Peter and Jesus, just as there would be a tension between me and is still with some pastors who are like, no, I'm totally gay-friendly, but continue to lead places where I can't go. And so I feel that tension pretty palpably, and Jesus needs to go and help relieve that tension. And while I don't relate to that kind of tension, like this week when Rachel and I went to visit some friends, I did relate to sort of the slight awkwardness in the air in this story. Like I was reading it and I was like, oh, I kind of know that sort of awkwardness as you're eating together just because of those lingering effects of COVID. And that felt accessible to me. And I think a lot of people I've spoken with, many of you can relate to this on some levels as well, right? As we've re-engaged over the last few months, some of us, you know, it's been like a year but I think there's always questions like, oh, gosh, this is only like our fourth time meeting in person again, right? What will church be like? What will that feel like? Um, will we know how to talk to each other after this great big pause? Um, will, I, will I be interesting <laughs> to people around me when we haven't been doing all that much? You've got all of these little insecurities. And I know a few of us even have been in baby land for a couple of years I'm kind of looking back there at you, Chris Salzman, <laughs> a little bit at Laura, whose kids are a little older, but that's particularly isolating on top of everything. And we're coming from all these different backgrounds. Like some of us who are newer come from an, you know, a queer background where maybe going into church just feels awkward and you haven't been into one in years and you're like, I don't know how this is going to feel. Some of you who are newcomers I've talked to have come from more conservative churches and you've kind of realized that the systemic change in those places is actually getting harder and not easier. And so you've kind of left and stepped out. And I would just bet that for some of you, if you're coming from that space, that's been a little disorienting as well. And I know from experience that stepping out of that boat can feel lonely and it can feel a little confusing and you lose friends. 
And so in times like these, I think it's easy to hold an expectation of scarcity, right? That, that we're not going to be enough or we're not sure that we've done enough with God. Maybe we're not even sure, you know, where God is or if God is or if God is enough. But through this story, I think that the spirit of the resurrected Jesus would say to us, it's going to be okay. Right? Just rest assured there's abundance in this world. Right, with our church family, with our friends, even with the creator, no matter how much space you need, there's that grace upon grace upon grace. And even if you feel a little like Peter, where you're like, man, I just feel this awkwardness between me and God, the story tells us that there's a comfortable campfire with no expectations. Right? You don't have to go and prove yourself to this God. You don't have to go and tell a really funny story. It's just a place to sit and rest, and eat, and be. And actually just resting in that space and making that same space for others at the table is the kingdom of God at work in this world. It's why John ends his gospel there. I love you. Rest and eat. Breakfast is served. So with that, that's where I want to sit for our meditations. We often do a minute or two of just silence or guided meditation. And what I'd like to invite you to do, if you would like, um, just get yourselves comfortable, take some deep breaths. And you can just imagine that scene on the beach. Picture like Michigan, if you want, or Pinckney. You've got a little campfire going on the shore. You've maybe got a little bit of food that you've got cooking over it. You can picture the divine however it is that you picture the divine coming and just sitting with you in that space. And just meditate on those lines. I love you. Rest and eat. Breakfast is served. Let's do that for about a minute, and I'll let you know when the time is up. I love you. Rest and eat. Breakfast is served. Jesus, you told us that your, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And we thank you that it's this easy, that we can just sit with you, that we know that we can be with you. And it's in that space of just feeling that easiness um, of being in friendship with you that we find our rest and our strength to be able to go out and extend justice. And it's in that place at the campfire that we learn to open our embrace just as God has opened God's embrace to all of humanity. We ask that we would be able to find this rest 
as we move through our weeks and that we would experience your grace and your presence in the everyday as we move through our lives and through our jobs. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.